Sarah. Episode 422. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Coming at Why Are Sarah you? and I just spent about 45 minutes shit-talking a bunch of people before we so pushed many. record. I mean, that not you fun. guys. Not you guys. No, 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 no. Not pre- no, not any of you guys. Definitely just everyone not. we've ever met. Just like everybody else. <laughs> yeah. No, and mo- mostly like the van that has parked outside <laughs> of my apartment where there used to be just one hour parking. And yeah. now it's, it's, now it's you like, know, it's a parking garage, essentially. It's a parking garage. People, mm-hmm. uh, it really, it really is funny how all rules have gone out the window. Like, <laughs> I mean, people park, there's an ATM and a grocery store right across the street from me. And people park park in the meridian. People park like right in the whatever you call that. Is that the middle of the median? Whatever, yeah. Median, median, yeah. the mm-hmm. median. Ugh. I full disclosure. I've had two mimosas, <laughs> one and a half. But we'll call it a meridian. Who cares? Yeah, whatevs. That sounds good. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're like parking in the middle. You know, there's uh, uh, somebody else was like rolling up on uh, uh, in a Harley and they just parked right on the sidewalk like yeah, that wouldn't have who cares wouldn't and I'm like what ifs so now this this <laughs> van has parked and like now they live right underneath me Does someone live 15 in the feet van outside yeah oh they live they in have the a van? full reclining chair <laughs> in the van it's like a, a sliding you know one of those van like an astro van and inside is a recliner <laughs> so do you and you are telling me they're homeless uh I, well, they I wouldn't call them homeless. They have a van. Gotcha. And some they got into a fight. I'm not even gonna debate it. They got into a fight and then you said there was some sort of graffiti on the van now. Yes, there was a yelling match between uh uh the owner of said van and then uh what I lady took friend. from the fight was his lady friend of six years, but not Maybe they've hooked up, but they're not together, but just friends. And she's mm-hmm. very upset because he has a lot of bicycles. He won't even sh- give her one of the bicycles. And she even turned down a date with a fireman yeah. to hang out with him. Or I guess, I don't know, somehow There was a sacrifice him. that was There was made. a sacrifice made. <laughs> uh, uh, also, would have loved to see that going down that night the fire truck pulled up to our house rather than worrying about oh what God, they were that's doing. That's when she met him? Must have been. I mean, the oh, fire trucks are great. here. So I like it, that just happened. So you I live mean, in I'm Melrose just, Place. I'm convinced. Th- I'm not kidding. I totally do. I, I was just saying this to Ren. I'm like, this is exciting. Who needs <laughs> television? And, you know, and I was just reading this article in Psychology Today about how there's this desire to return to like simple things. Yes. You know, which, which, and I, I think that is when, when we get, when the, the, I don't know, not so simple things aren't available to us. Maybe it's just this, this biological, I don't know, defense mechanism yeah, or something like that. I just bought like a that. book called Gardening with Chickens. Oh my God. So are you gonna, I <gasps> understand. Are you going to get chickens? Yeah, I think we're going to get a farm. What? Everybody's getting chickens except me. I need some land. <laughs> I know. I still feel like you will have it, though. I will one day. Mm-hmm. Goals. And by everybody, I mean you and one other person I know. <laughs> right now, my world is small, Susie. Well, Adam grew up with chickens in his backyard, so, so he's jealous. very um, familiar with the protocol. Yeah. So, 
That yeah. is a simpler time. Make sure you get the egg laying kind. My mom made the mistake of not getting those. And then I didn't she know there was ten, another kind. There is. And she had 10 it. chickens she couldn't get rid of and she just named them. And Henny Penny what? didn't want to live outside. Why didn't they lay I've eggs? I definitely talked about clear. this. There, I don't know. She just got 10 chickens and they just didn't. I, maybe it was because she didn't have a rooster or something. Is that well, like important? Maybe. I don't know. No. I don't even know how it works. Or maybe you're not supposed to have a rooster because then you get a chicken, right? <laughs> All right. Then, I actually yeah. don't know how eggs. <laughs> what we're learning. What is, is sex? How- <laughs> <laughs> I we need someone oh, to share this the is birth like the, the 420 episode, but <laughs> boards. For, well, I'm for, sober. Oh God, <laughs> hilarious. Okay, Eddie Hoodles. Yes, yes, people are going back to their sort of the simpler lifestyles. Yes, yes. Bacon bread and getting chickens. Mm. Oh my gosh, I can't okay. wait to have those. Sarah. Yes, Susie. <laughs> I love that you're tipsy. This is great. I know, and it happened accidentally. I'm not even kidding. I have had one and a half glasses. I think it's time for two. And, and you know, so, and I, I even had breakfast. I had waffles because we just bought a waffle maker. Oh, yeah. It well, is I'm good. happy about it. You, tipsy Sarah is my favorite Sarah. Oh, it, it, she is fun. And champagne <laughs> tipsy? <laughs> if I could whistle better, I would have. Insert whistle right there. I wanted to encourage people. I watched a docuseries on Netflix. If you haven't seen it yet, it's called Trial by Media. Would Trial. highly recommend it. What is it um, about? It's... A multi it's a series so it, each episode deals with a different high profile trial that was influenced oh. by the media and the first episode is essential viewing for us because it deals with the now famous Jenny Jones murder are you familiar with this Jenny story jo- no well she's not murdered this they call oh. it that because it was with people on the show Oh, I don't know this. Okay, here's the backstory. Oh my God, I love this. I mean, Me I don't too. love the murder, but love... I'm like fascinated <laughs> right now. So I? I the scoop is that Jenny Jones, if you aren't familiar, was a talk show who, you know, was very playful. And a lot of times they would have like, you know, reveals on the show. Like mm-hmm. so-and-so has a crush on you or I had a baby and I want to know the dad. Like Mari Povich style, but not so serious, more playful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they did a call for audience to call in if they had a crush on somebody of the same sex. So this guy oh, comes on the show and they, he has a crush on his friend, this other guy, and um, they reveal it on the show. At the time, the person that was being quote-unquote ambushed or whatever you want to call it, um, surprised, mm-hmm. he was very good-natured about it and, you know, embarrassed and was just like i'm straight and you know not interested kind of thing thanks but, but no thanks yeah and and jenny was actually i thought during the episode she was sort of like just reasonable she was like how we would be where she's like you know this is flattering anyway even if you're not interested it was just sort of lighthearted. well you know cut to a couple weeks later the episode hadn't even aired yet and the ambush e went to the guy's house and shot him and killed him and called 911 and said, you know, I killed this guy because he basically did me dirty on Jenny Jones. So now here we have... Called the police himself? Yeah. 
wow. called the police and said, I killed him. And they said, why? And he said, because he oh did this God. on Jenny Jones. So <clears throat> then they have a trial, of course, and it becomes a big media sensation. And so the docuseries Trial by Media explores the weird world of A, talk shows, B, sort of reality TV mm. and making people li- people's lives entertainment and the consequences of that. Oh God. And then it, I really loved how it unpacks the problem of now it's gavel-to-gavel coverage on court TV, which is owned by Warner Brothers, which is the same company that owns Jenny Jones. And it's like even oh in death, God. we're still exploiting people and using people's terrible moments for our entertainment. Of course, we all do this. And we've all, um, we all are, I mean, I, we even know, I feel like that when they do, sometimes when they do tributes to people on, oh God, it's so awful where it's like, do you really care? Or are you just selling advertising? Yeah. I mean, everything is commodified and that includes mm. people's lives, people's tragedies. And this is certainly not new, right, but right. the... OJ trial and reality TV sort of ushered in this new era where literally every part of our lives can be um, monetized or at least public. And wow. how, you know, when these people came on the show, sure, it was meant to be fun and not um, violent or upsetting. Oh but God. if somebody has maybe an underlying mental health issue or, yep. um, you know, some sort of personal shame maybe the guy was gay and didn't want to come out of the closet right. and that's then felt, what i think that's my that's that was what a lot of my, well think. i mean i don't know but that was my well because they said on the show yeah. there was a girlfriend of both of them there and she said jenny t- said to her do you think this guy's gay she's like no but he has said that his family wonders if he is oh <gasps> no right? nope, can't say that can't right. do that so then you think, well, maybe he was closeted. Oh, how sad for everybody. Well, now I've been, funnily enough, I've been trying to reach him because of my work studying yeah. letters. And um, he had just gotten out of jail right when I was starting to write my letters. So I, I can only really find them when they're in jail because I'm not oh going to harass goodness. people at home. But um, I never got in touch with him. But it was really interesting. And it does make you think about... The shows that we watch and the people's lives that we're using as entertainment and maybe just to think a little bit more about that. Suze, it's really great that you practice what you preach. Oh, thank you. That you, you know, talk to them when they're in a place where maybe they need a little bit of companionship and a little human interaction and to be kind of seen in maybe a different way. Yeah. And have their story told. But then when it's their time that you wouldn't contact them. I think that's really like admirable. And I like didn't even think about that. And so like, you know, shout out to my friend Suze. (laughs) Shout out to Suze. Shout out to Suze. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a different type of thing when you bother somebody in their own home. Um, But so like in this case, Jenny Jones actually took the stand at one point and um, this lawyer said to her, you know, how are you doing today? And she was like, I'm okay. And he said, do you know you're smiling right now? <gasps> and she was like, um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And she said, he goes, oh, you mean like John was on the stage when he smiled, but really, oh, 
<laughs> Damn. It was like, oh, fuck. Like, well, sh- I say, I, that's a good point. It is. Because we that's often what, have reactions that don't match. Incongruent our, affect. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a real thing. And I mm-hmm. always talk about that in my presentations on sexual abuse and trauma response because that happened to me when I was sexually assaulted by the daycare worker and when I was interviewed about it by the cop, mm-hmm. I started laughing and they said, do you think something's funny? And I was like, no, I don't know what, I didn't know what was happening to me. That's my, I was freaking seven, eight. Do you remember them asking you that? Yes. (gasps) I remember where I was sitting on the couch. I remember how I then put my hands over my mouth. I remember how I then stuck my hands under my seat and I like rubbed, kept rubbing the, like the fabric. I remember what the fabric feels Mm -hmm. like under, cause it's, it's those, what do they call peripheral details? I remember cause that was Mm re-traumatizing to have somebody basically tell me, I don't believe you. Oh, we're getting therapeutic over here. Oh my God. So, you know. Wow. Yeah. And that's, uh, everyone's been in a situation where they feel uncomfortable and they laugh. I mean, hell it's called nervous laughter. Um, And when you smile when you're upset, I mean, this is just basic human uh, defense mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But anyway, do you think, in your opinion, based just on what I've told you, that she should be held accountable, that the producers should be held accountable, or or not? Mm. Oh, gosh. I mean, no. I feel like it's so unfortunate that we have Mm -hmm. to go through something like this. It's kind of like... We have seatbelts in a car because people had to die in the car accident. Yeah. And get thrown through. Win- I mean, that's so awful to think of it like that and to think that there's somebody that's like, in a way, like, I don't want to say a sacrifice because that's like not what I mean, but that it takes something like this to then sure. bring awareness to a problem to then create change. And the people who benefit from that change come after it. But unfortunately, there's like, you know, yeah. I don't know, no justice because well, the rules the- are set against it because it says it's like what are you going what are the what are the rules yeah. what is the law there's a contract that contract I've signed I know what those yeah. lines say that I always joke that decapitation is written in there and that I always go well just let them gave them the right to decapitate me I would always joke about that <laughs> like but the, it's like I'm joking but that's the fucking truth. Like you're signing yeah. away and there's that it's to protect them from, you know, any and all things. But is that right? Like, you know, no. And now we, now we have the, now they do those psychological screenings after, um, what is it? Megan wants a millionaire, whatever that show was where the guy murdered the winner, yeah. the finalist murdered his girlfriend. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so now they're like, mm, maybe we should give them some psychological evaluations before we put them on there. And so they changed that. So I think it's just like a matter of time, but I don't, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I don't think that the producers or Jenny should be no. held accountable. Um, and when they called the the murderer guy, when they called him and said, you know, somebody has a crush on you and they want to tell you on Jenny Jones, it uh-huh. might be a man, it might be a woman. Um, so I feel like he had enough information yeah. to know this is going to be, it could be embarrassing or... Somebody you don't like back. So I don't think it was their job to sort of um, make it easier. But right. there are some ethical questions about the ambush television in general. That's the thing is it's a matter of ethics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the only – when I researched this, the only 
other study that I was able to cite was a media ethics study on is it ethical to put people on through reality television? And the re- he concluded no. Oh my God, not at all. Only one other one. And it was done in the Netherlands or oh like God. Finland or something. Well, around there. Yeah, I mean, there's a people's lives as entertainment in whatever oh, form, yeah. be it a talk show or a documentary or a reality show. There are ethical questions and it's not black and white. Right. It's very hard to know what is exploitation and what isn't. But um, I found it really fascinating to look at the and like the analysis of this particular incident. I'm surprised there's not more of them, to be honest with you, because being on television and having something revealed about you yeah. is traumatic. Or it can Especially be. Especially when say. it comes down to like matters of identity like that. Yeah, that people right? have gone to and shame. To, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. But the, the mm. series has other – that's the splashiest episode. It's the first one. And then after that, they do um, – uh, the two that I've seen are dealing with like murders where there's like a racial issue and mm-hmm. the, how the media informed the public opinion and stuff. It's very oh, good. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah, would yeah. love it. Yes. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. Did but, you watch um, – uh, 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 what's the basketball one? The Last Dance? Last Dance. Yeah. Not yet. I don't have that, you know, ESPN. But um, when it comes out on Netflix or whatever, oh, I'll watch it. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I can't wait. I hear it's really good. It is. But you know what's interesting? That I feel like it's good if you don't know a lot about basketball. Well, then I'm in luck. Right. Because so I loved love it, it and Ren was like, "Yeah, I already know this." Oh, it's <laughs> like old news. Yeah. yeah. And my aunt loves it. Like all these people right. love it. <laughs> Right, because like, we like, went on a walk with my aunt, and she was all like, those um, thirty for like, thirty documentaries. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, they're this so is good. Great. No, those are so those are on another level. I love yeah. them. But I guess yeah, if you were like a big fan of whatever that specific, you know, you would already know it, and it'd be like, yeah, this is why I'm a fan. This is why we love them. Duh. Yeah. Right, why do you think right. I have the jersey? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm well, like, oh my god, I should definitely get a jersey. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing you should definitely get is liquid IV Mm -hmm. because you got to stay hydrated. You got to help your immune system be healthy. Um, Liquid IV, these little pouches with flavored powder that you can pour into your water that help hydrate you at two to three times as fast as water. And they're packed with vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, all the Bs. And um, you can take them, you can keep them in your purse, you can keep them in the car, you can use them um, after you've had a little too much to drink. Yeah, I'll be definitely be Sarah. chasing on mimosas <laughs> with that. Uh, I was just thinking about that. I was like, okay, I know just where they are. Which flavor yeah. am I going to go with? I think I'll do acai. It's very handy. Liquid IV is available nationwide at Target, Whole Foods, and Costco. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code CANDY at checkout. Well, duh, do that. 25% off anything you order when you use promo code candy at liquidiv.com get better hydration today at liquidiv.com promo code candy you can also find them nationwide at target whole foods at costco yeah man okay 25 percent off i know don't you love a deal i do there it's like pretty much my favorite thing it, <laughs> i also watched um this was on netflix as well the documentary about divine the um i guess you'd call her a drag queen you mm. remember her from like the john waters movies Hairspray. Oh, um, yes. Pink flamingos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, let me look up. I need to You'll know where to see. I mean, she's a big... Big lady. Big lady. um, 
with the eyebrows like drawn on super high um, yeah. and real winged eyeliner. Mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm. I'll put it on Instagram because you guys will know oh, her when you see her. But the documentary was great because I had seen images of Divine in memes and stuff and I've seen hairspray, but I didn't know her story. And oh, I got to sneeze. Is it going to come out? Oh, okay. bless you. Man, <laughs> that almost you. never happens I know. on the air for us. <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. I know yeah. her. Total oh, badass. like the biggest eyebrows that there yeah. <laughs> ever were. Real character. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Love. Um, I'm forgetting her name now. Her real and, name. Uh, Dominic, uh, uh, was it? Harris Div- Glenn Milstead. Oh, Glenn. Yeah, Glenn. He went by. Glenn. And he did not identify as trans and he did not, he didn't even really identify as a transvestite because this was just a performance persona for like movies and stuff. It wasn't something he did in his real life. Oh, um, so he's just like a, he, what a, 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 like straight heterosexual male, like. Well, he is gay. Cisgendered. Oh, he's gay. Yeah, he's gay, but he wasn't trans and like he didn't ever wear drag. I see, I see, I see. I see. It was like, Mm -hmm. got it. It was just a career. Yeah. Yeah. It's drag queen. And I I find it really interesting to learn about people, especially during that time where they probably were closeted for most of their life and then um, their reaction to coming out of the closet is to have a persona maybe or... Um, performance mm-hmm. as an outlet and mm-hmm. it's just it's just fascinating yes. and it's so cool to me that john waters and divine grew up a few doors away from each other so they were oh, friends their that. whole life and isn't that cool that these two like countercultural icons found yes. each other it's like john lennon it. and paul mccartney it's so <laughs> like, cool thank god they found each other because they created this crazy um i don't know what you'd call it cult classic movie yeah situation Fun, fun to hear the history of it. Do you think they, like, independently would have had their own... I mean, yes, in a way, but reach that level if there wasn't, like, another person there to kind of, like, drive that or influence that, that a little bit? That's kind of cool to think about. Yeah, would seems- Sarah exist without Susie? <laughs> right. Are we totally codependent? <laughs> right. Well, I think in the case of Divine that John Waters sort of gave Divine permission to be mm. that wild it gives you courage you know yeah when you have someone saying yeah just do it because at the end of the movie i think it's called pink flamingos divine has this famous scene where a dog poops and divine eats it on camera and really did it in real life and it was like warm poop that just came out of a dog oh my god stop 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 for real and so and i don't really it ain't a brain candy episode without a poop right (laughs) without a poop combo but i don't really understand why that was important to do but that it's like the performance art that we talk about like right this was a way of saying like they're doing things that um society would deem as Mm -hmm. um taboo Mm -hmm. anyway it's great you should watch it yeah, but you know what? I'm all about the. Listen, you're talking a rogue carbonara over here. Nobody knows the power of. That's it. Wait, wait. What is? I thought your persona was black. Tuesday no. Or something. Oh, that was Tuesday that was my Saturday. that was my uh, 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 Instagram. Like uh, what? No, what is it called? AOL Insta Messenger name. Was, but okay, what's my rogue like carbonara? superhero alter ego, which is the password for our 
well, I shouldn't give it out loud. Oh my God, you should bleep that. That's what happens. <laughs> I won't say what is the password for. You'll never know. Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. What if it's like to our secret club, <laughs> which kind of is. Uh, dying right is now. Rogue Carbonara. Rogue Carbonara is the uh, my, my like internal superhero alter ego yeah, that I see, created I forgot. I forgot. when I was like doing challenges or trying to do tough stuff like uh, like oh, it's like even, Beyonce has that too. Sasha Fierce. Yes. Oh my mm-hmm. god, I didn't even think of it. Oh god, anything that you can do, you're to tell me like that Beyonce. me and Beyonce <laughs> have something alike or in common. <laughs> oh, you just mm-hmm. made my day. Woo. Um, yes. No, I can't think of anything else. Um, but yes, there you go. It's so important. So I think we. And then what happens is like you can take the two parts of you. If there's one part of you that feels like really weak and like you can't do it, and then you have this one side of you that's like divine or low carbonara and you're like whatevs that person can do it and then eventually when you start strengthening that voice that can do it you can like bring the two together and realize that oh my gosh we're like the same person and then you like that power is within you all the time and blah 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 it's great so well you're so right even in the case of divine they were saying that divine in as glenn it was quite soft-spoken and a bit Mm -hmm. shy and divine was brassy and bold and aggressive. Um, one thing that surprised me was that she felt typecast and very limited by the character and mm-hmm. was really trying to get the mainstream, like become an actor as Glenn and mm-hmm. finally got a job as a guest star on Married with Children and then died the day before <gasps> of heart attack. If Not I sad. mean, if Alanis Morissette told me that that was her inspiration for the song "Ironic," I, I would know. believe it. So sad. That's in, that is insane. Mm-hmm. The chances. I'm so excited. I know, but it could be related. You know how, like, sometimes if like you're so excited uh-huh. about something, uh-huh. sometimes it can do crazy stuff to your body. Yeah. And Glenn didn't oh, wow. take very good care of himself. Well, obviously. like more uh, a higher risk of heart attack when there's like daylight savings or something like that. Yeah, you know, honestly, like, just like God. catches you off guard or like because I, I have know, that problem is. with migraines. Whenever I'm like feeling really good, sometimes that's when it triggers it. I don't know. It must be a hormone thing or something. Oh but, my God! Interesting. But I feel bad for Divine. She never got I to too. be Glenn. Well, you know what. If you think about that and we like were to put a positive spin on that, like could there be another way to look at that? Who like knows what? what the future could have held? What if when <laughs> he went on there and performed as Glenn, mm-hmm. he was terrible Aww. and got very bad reviews and then w- became more known for being like this somebody who like, like had his time in life. Yes, a failure. Mm. You know, all right. Well, maybe he was spared. And of so, that. like, he was spared of that, and instead got to be like immortalized as this iconic. I'm probably going to get sick of your positivity machine. Probably, <laughs> yeah. That's fine, but I'm going to keep it running. So, oh my god, I meant to tell you this. I so you know how at book club I was saying I'm having trouble reading during quarantine. Oh my god, because, I'm like, finding that everybody is. Yes, yeah. It I just can't. In fact, for the first time in probably. I don't know, 15 years. I haven't read anything in the last two weeks. Wow. And it's like um, freeing, but temporary. But anyway, my point is what I've been doing with my fun 
leisure time is playing Best Fiends. Oh, because now yeah. I want to catch up to you. That's right. Like you got a head start and you you're on level fifty million mm-hmm. gazillion. Yes. But I'm going to catch you because I am having so much fun. Isn't it the I'm so glad that you welcome. Thank you. <laughs> now I don't feel I, so judged. I and I want to play it with Link too because Oh he'll love it. He loves games like this. It's just a nice yeah. fun break. It has little challenges. It has all kinds of levels. They're always adding characters and it's it's playful and it keeps you stimulated. I think you guys would love it. It's a great yes, time will. to try it. I know it. because people are tagging me in like their screenshots of they're like, oh, Sarah and Susie, but mostly Sarah. Now right. maybe Susie. You, yes. you got me with this. It is so good. And they are thanking me. It's so fun. Best Fiends, they have thousands of levels already with new levels, events, and characters added every month. Hours of fun right at your fingertips. And you can even play offline with over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews. Best Fiends is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. There you go. Yes. Uh, Let's talk about a hero. And let me tell you about him. Yeah, <clears throat> there was a fella driving down the highway, and he driving spotted down. a tanker truck, mm-hmm. and he motioned for the tanker truck to pull over, mm-hmm. and then he got out of his car. No tanker shoes, truck and- like the ones that carry gas. Kind like, of yes, okay, a liquid okay. of some kind. Liquid of some kind. Got it. Got it. Got it. A he tank. climbs okay. on, shoeless and shirtless, climbs onto the truck, mm-hmm. opens a valve. Mm-hmm. And starts drinking the wine that's in this truck. <gasps> <laughs> and this truck doesn't know that the guy's on there. Get out! Drives away. And this guy is trying to pound wine whilst this truck is barreling down the highway. What kind of cheap-ass wine comes in a wine tank, in a, in a tanker truck? I don't know, but he spilled out 1,000 gallons. <gasps> All over the highway. Now that's alcohol abuse. Alcohol <laughs> abuse. Oh. He's going to need a liquid IV later. My God. Right? Oh, no. Yeah, so he ended up... The only way the trucker even knew was they have a gauge that says, like, you're losing liquid. And it started alerting the driver, like, we're losing product. And then that's when they called the cops and the cops okay. came... And this guy Let's was underneath the truck down. in the shape of a snow angel. That's what they said. Underneath. Oh, my God. Okay, wait. Okay. So let's run through this. Yeah. Guys, driving? He was driving what? a car. Driving a car. He must Comes have known there was side. wine in there. They're on the highway, and he motions. So you know how there are those like symbols on cars where it's like symbols, like like nitrous oxide or oxygen. There's probably one that just says wine. (laughs) It's a bunch (laughs) of grapes. (laughs) It's like purple. I love it. Okay, so he we assume he sees the wine symbol on the back of the truck, and so then he then what is at a red light? He pulls over. They're on the highway. When does he proceed? Is he driving? No. Yes. And he motions for the truck to pull over. And the truck thought, oh, I must have some sort of mechanical problem. 
So then he pulls over. They both pull over, and then nothing happens as far as the trucker is concerned. So he's like, I guess that was false alarm. I'll carry on. In the meantime, the guy had He didn't look in his rearview mirror and see this guy's car just, like, parked outside and go, what the fuck happened to the dude? (laughs) I guess not. I would feel like, am I in a horror movie where he's going to, like, jump out and, like, kill me right now? Like, Mm -hmm. that would be... I would have some questions. Has the driver also been drinking from the tank? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe he just thought maybe he thought he misunderstood the signal okay right he's like oh maybe he was just swatting yeah. swatting at a fly yeah and <laughs> yeah okay and uh-huh. so then the guy hops up on there like mm-hmm. he's like vin diesel or something yes. in an action movie he's like yeah. i assume wind blowing through his hair and holding on to like this tanker and then yes. what finds like a valve on top I believe he's very familiar with tankers. He was on the bottom underneath. He was underneath, holding on. Like they said, it was like a snow angel. Oh my gosh! Okay, Mm -hmm. like oh my god, I totally had this. Like you know, like like runaway. You were being rational. You were like this. Like he was on top. Just on top. (laughs) He was like clinging. He was Spider Manning to like geckoing himself to the bottom. And I have to admire that commitment. Wow. I mean, I like wine, but I mean, I don't like wine that much. I think you do because, like, that combines some of your favorite things. Ah, yes. It makes it the more element of danger. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Rose Carbonara would love that. Oh my gosh! Please. <laughs> That's where she goes on a Friday night. You think she goes to the bar like a regular person? No, no, no. <laughs> She's finding wine tankers. She's also looking for that symbol on the back of the tankers. <laughs> Can somebody please Photoshop that and make one of those with a grape bunch on it, please? Yes, that's good. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. Oh my gosh. And so then I would. Well, okay. Also, if you were to design a tanker, <laughs> would uh-huh. you put the nozzle I know. on the fucking bottom where <laughs> there any, must where, be a reason? But I get it when you need to actually empty it. Then that was what I was thinking. But you should be able to, like, turn it. Do we have any new yeah. invention? <laughs> Is this right, one of those like things where, like... Cement truck, but for a yeah, while. Yeah, but, like, it, like, rotates. Yeah. And so, like, you can... <laughs> yes. Fit. Now, this is it a good It must be because, you know how um, when they deliver petroleum gas, then yeah. they have to put it in the ground. Maybe that's why the... Like the, the hose. Doesn't... Yeah. Yeah. It goes below. I, mean, I don't know. What the hell do I know? Right. And I always thought wine just what was like barrel and then you bottle it and then those bottles go on the yeah, truck. Yeah, what is going on in this truck? Right. You know? It's like McDuck, they're, Scrooge they're McDuck, like you to- like dive in. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm like, <laughs> like, are they delivering this to our P.O. box? <laughs> <laughs> right. Property of Brain Candy Podcast. Right. Oh, God. That's funny. Yeah. Anyways, Man, I don't know I what wonder what the doing. crime is for that. Or what the what the oh my god what the the probably the, a big one because somebody could get hurt for sure yeah but you know it's like one of those things where <laughs> right. there's like they not really like it. yes like nobody's yeah. ever done that like fuck what do we even charge this guy with where you hear these crazy crimes and then like what they ended up getting arrested for is like mail fraud or something like that you know <laughs> right that like happens all the time <laughs> right tax evasion yeah it's like something like that. Well, or it's like enough, he's going to get like a jaywalking charge or something, and that's. 
I know, I know. I don't even know what he ended up getting, like in terms of jail time or penalty or whatever. But I just definitely hangover. Yes, right. That's why I said he needs liquid IV. Yes, he does. Um, Oh, by the way, I have this. um, What do you think about this idea? Mm -hmm. I've been listening to a lot of disco lately. Yeah. um, Which let me give you a question, a a prompt, and then when I'm done with my story, you can answer. I love wherever this is going. I listen. I, what do you think of this idea? I've been listening to a lot of disco, and you're asking me for advice. Okay. This first, is going to be good. The first question is: My friends and I have been debating this. I want to know what you think would be the quintessential mm. disco song. Don't answer yet. Okay, got it. Some of the ones that are up for Obviously. debate would be like that: um, "Staying Alive," "I Will that Survive," was my, that was, "Yes, Yes," "Dancing Queen." Organer. Uh-huh. Um, there's a, like the hustle. There's lots of ones that you might choose. So think it over. I know. I know. Yeah, I got it. Okay. In I the meantime, it. I, because I'm listening to disco, I was reminded about how the lead singer of the village people used to be married to Felicia Rashad, the mom on the Cosby show. Oh. And I thought how strange that must be to be in a band that's synonymous with gay culture and cruising and stuff like that mm-hmm. and be a straight man. Um, so I wanted to like find out more. Mm-hmm. And there have been so many uh, iterations of the lineup of the village people. So I was telling Adam about, uh, you know, he was like a founding member. He wrote all the songs, which is crazy because all the songs are about gay culture. Oh, come A hundred percent they are. Yeah, but do you think he's gay? Is well, that what you're telling me he's either. Oh, he was okay, like, but well, like, maybe he was around mm. gay people and he would hear their stories and be like, "Oh, I got to write a song about that." <laughs> but they were in costume and everything. Yeah, it does make me think that maybe I need more evidence. I need yeah, more, and I need more info. And I was like, "Ad, I want to know more. I need to interview these people." And he goes, "No, you need to make a documentary, and you need to call it." It takes a village, people. <gasps> Just re- didn't we talk about it in a previous episode? The title's half the battle. There you go. Yeah, I was like, well, we have done. to make it now. We have to make it. It's already done. We've said okay. it. We put it into motion. This is fantastic. I believe <laughs> I was having a conversation with Ren. I think it was Ren, where it was somebody, or it was my little brother, because it was somebody who was like, like younger enough where. Like I have more of a memory of the village people, like you know, yeah. than and and he, I, whoever it was, it was like, oh, they were gay. Like the songs, like they, oh that God. was like new, and I was like, Stop. oh, let me just pull up these costumes and show have you. Have you seen the Leather Man? I think it was. I think it was because we were talking about how like we always sing the YMCA song at camp, and I was like, isn't that funny that we? D-? Yeah, that's got to be it. When but I love, I the think that maybe it's, it. it's 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 th- th- maybe that does it like people miss the the the. Gay references? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Because if you're not in that subculture, then you might not think it means what it does. Is it funny that I wear it like a badge of honor that I get those (laughs) I know what that means. We're gay supremacists. We already have established this. (laughs) All right, well, I'll work on the documentary anyway. I love that. So your (sighs) vote would be for staying alive. Is that what you were saying? No, my vote for... Is uh, for, oh, baby, my heart is full of love and desire for you. Yeah. Uh, 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 Come on down and do what you got to do. Uh, 
the hell is that song called? Is that Donna Summer? I think it is. Come on, satisfy the need in me. Um, all right, I'm going to look that up. What the hell is that song called? I don't know, but it's a great one. Don't leave me this way. Yes. Don't leave Leave me this this way. way. Yes. Oh, God, that song is so good. It is. And you'd be surprised how many great tunes there are because it got such a bad rap. And I was asking Matt Neroni, I was like, do you think it was like homophobia that made people react to disco by doing the like disco sucks and then the steamroller at the baseball game? Do you remember that? Yeah, I mean, like, I get the anti, anti-disco disco thing because... Oh. You think it was homophobia or something else? Oh, I didn't even think about it as being homophobic. Like, homophobic, I almost see it as being more like... Anti-commercialism? Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, like, okay. kind of being, like... I'm trying to think if there's, like, a, a more modern... Well, kind of like that. boy bands. People, yeah, like that's yeah. like what I'm it's thinking about. It's too produced, uh-huh. too capitalist, and just okay. being like musical elitists and being like, "Oh, you're a sellout." Like it's like that kind of. I you know? would think though there might be more to it in terms of because I the think people right. that love it are yep. women and gay people. Gay I men. think you're. T- a hun- I never even thought about that, and it was this battle between classic rock and roll, yeah. which is. Male. Like, so straight, yeah. male, mm-hmm. bleh, like, white that. Mask. White, yeah. that. Like, And, bleh, like, disco's and... more people of color, too. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Come on. The, the look, see, the whole... I'm telling you, it takes this a village, is... people. Oh, Susie, this <laughs> is your documentary. This is my time. And I, I want you to make it just for the soundtrack alone. I know. Can you imagine how great that would be? I all encourage you all to listen to Disco Fever on Alexa because that station is a laugh a minute and such good bangers. Oh, on I'm there. gonna, I'm gonna totally listen to that. Okay, That's get fantastic. down to it. Um, also, have you seen the movie Detroit Rock City? No. You need to see that like tonight. Why? Because it's just great and so <laughs> funny. And also, like they talk about great. that, it's like the battle between. There's like a whole bit oh, okay. in like the battle between okay. disco and and like and rock and roll. And you'll just love the movie. And I think okay. it's a movie. It was like is people missed out on how great this movie was. It's hilarious. The opening yeah. scene alone. Okay. The Want end. It. The end. The end. Okay. Uh, anyway, Dahlia, do a poll where we find out what other people think is the quintessential <gasps> disco Best. tune disco tune of all time yeah not not even best but just like what quintessential um, representative of the genre yeah okay because that's why i pick my song because i feel like it encompasses like the whole like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. ophthalmologist dr strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Oh, yes. Okay, I have guests on today. They wrote a great book called Hunting Whitey, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss about Whitey Bulger. 
Oh, wow. Do you remember when they found Whitey in Santa Monica? Are you privy to this? It rings a bell, but it's so, like, I don't know yeah. any of the details. You don't follow yeah. it. Mm-hmm. No. Well, Whitey is this notorious Boston crime boss guy who was sort of the last of that era where, you know, like Goodfellas type of stuff. Yeah. And he went on the run and was on the run for years and years and years. And most people were like, is he dead? Is he just like never going to be caught? And then eventually he was caught in Santa Monica in this little apartment with his girlfriend and um, went to jail and then was killed in jail, um, not surprisingly. But Jeez. Um, when he was, I think he was 90 or something. Whoa. You know, like he was an old man by the time he was in this prison. And then they like beat him with a roll of uh, quarters in a oh sock Oh my God. An old man. And not like, I don't I know, know why you're like excluded from like, you know. <laughs> right. They're off limits. They're off limits. But come on. I know. But he Jeez. had a lot of enemies, of course. And when he was caught, it came to light that all that time he had been an informant to the FBI. Oh, no wonder he... Yeah, okay. Yeah. And he had killed people for doing that. So, <gasps> you know, Ooh. people were not happy. E. Um, and it's just crazy that... Oh, yeah, I want to hear all these stories. Right? Like that this guy was doing the very thing that he claimed was against his moral code. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, I loved the book because it describes sort of like how he, like basically his undoing. And mm-hmm. it talks about how a lot, for a lot of um, male criminals on the run, the way to find them is through the, the women. I was the, totally going to yeah. guess that. Uh, right? Uh-huh. They can't resist. Yeah. And he like put on this whole show all these years, like both while he was still in Boston and when he was on the run of like being this super nice guy, like being very charitable, you know how sometimes they do that where it's like they murder people, but then they like have these other morals where it's like you help people that are poor or well, somehow balancing out the scales yeah. in your own mind. Like, oh, well, I can do this, but I did all this good stuff over here. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. But the craziest part about the book, the kind, the thing that kind of made headlines before mm-hmm. I read it, mm-hmm. was that when he was a, he was originally in prison in um, years prior in Alcatraz, and during that time, the government performed experiments oh. on prisoners. Oh my god! And they gave him dose after dose after dose of LSD. Oh my God, this story keeps getting more interesting. <laughs> this is crazy. And and the consequences of that are that for the rest of his life, he had insomnia, paranoia, all this stuff. And it was never even really brought up at his trial. Wouldn't you use that if you Absolutely. were his defense attorney? Absolutely. <laughs> right? I mean, I don't know if it had any impact on I whether mean, he I want to know crimes. brain scans and all that. Oh my God, this is fascinating. Interesting. Right? Anyway, Ooh, it's going to be a good book. Great book if you like true crime. Um, if you just like a good page turner, "Hunting Whitey" by Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge. Um, the inside story of the capture and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. It's such a great read. They do a wonderful job of unpacking the complexities of human condition, relationships, 
morality, all the stuff that like gets my motor running. Um, and I think you guys will love it. And I loved Ooh, interviewing yes. them. So let's welcome them to the show, Casey Yay. and Dave. All right, fellas. So I freaking love your book for starters, Hunting Why You. It was so fun to read. And I guess I wanted to start with how you're feeling about promoting a book at this weird moment. And if you're sad at all, or you feel good about it still. I mean, we feel really good about it um, because we're real, very proud of the book. And this is the way to uh, reach our audiences right now, vi- you know, virtually and, and, and virally. Uh, what we don't feel good about is not having that direct connection to our readers. Right, Dave? Yeah. You know, I mean, for each of our books, especially this one, it would be nice to have a, a big launch event. You know, we, we had some plans like New York, Boston. We were actually going to do one in L.A. And we may still do that, you know, as time goes on. But, um, you know, Casey's right. It's, it's tough to not be able to meet and greet people, talk to them face to face. But I think we're all experiencing that in our lives everywhere. So uh, thankfully we have Zoom. Yes. I mean, it's better than nothing for sure. I just always feel bad when I interview authors now because they toil away so long and now it's supposed to be the the fun part where people are consuming it and enjoying it and you can interact. So it's sort of a a letdown, I'm sure. Right. But the good thing is, you know, everybody's home. So everybody's either binge watching their favorite television show or they're reading. So, you know, uh, there is a benefit there. All right. Well, we'll focus on this, those silver linings. And I do hope people um, check out your book now since we all have a little more time and hopefully are consuming more books. Hunting Whitey, the inside story of capturing and killing of America's most wanted crime boss. What the heck do you think is so um, uh, fascinating about Whitey in particular that he's he captures our imagination for such a long period of time. What was it about this guy? I mean, I think he was the last of a dying breed, really the last American godfather <laughs> in that, you know, classic sense. And there's a, a great air of mystery about him as well, because, uh, you know, he vanished for several years before, uh, you know, the FBI finally finally tracked him down. And were you guys sort of, um, following the story all along before he was even found, or did this come into your mind after he was captured? No, so Casey and I were both uh, reporters in Boston for 20 years, and Casey was at uh, the CBS affiliate here in Boston. I was at the Boston Herald. So we both had covered the Whitey Bulger case off and on for 20 years, you know, and, um, you know, like Casey said, it just captured the imagination. No, I think no one ever thought he was going to be caught. And the fact that he was caught in California, Santa Monica, kind of hiding in plain sight, only added to his mystique. And it made everyone think, what's he been doing for 16 years? You know, and it also brought the story to the entire country where, you know, it's not just a Boston story. You know, he lived in New Orleans. He was in Chicago. He was in Las Vegas. And he obviously lived in Santa Monica for a long time. And I think all of that together coupled with the, uh, the the corruption in the FBI that was involved in the, in the uh, early days of the investigation, all the police corruption, all the mistakes that were made. It's just a fantastic mystery, and, and we really took the time to unravel it, tell the end of the story, and how he really uh, came to meet his justice. When you guys were covering it during those years, what did you think was going on? Did you think he was dead? Did you think he was hiding? No, uh, certainly didn't think he was dead, but it was almost like chasing Bigfoot. 
you just didn't know where he was. If there was a body out there somewhere, then uh, then it would have eventually turned up. You know, as Dave mentioned, you know, we covered Whitey Bulger in the 1990s, you know, at the height of his power before he vanished. When I was a college student at Boston University, I lived in South Boston, right in the heart of Whitey Bulger's territory, right down the street from many of the people that in his gang. I'd met Whitey Bulger on occasion. So, you know, there was this early fascination with this figure, but then that, that kind of lore and mythology was destroyed over time because, you know, we realized what a real violent, sadistic criminal Whitey Bulger really was. Yeah, what was your impression of him before he ran off? Did you think this guy's evil or do you think it was just sort of like that they had a different understanding of morality? Well, I I mean, I had covered many of the uh, cases that he was involved in before he went on the run. And, um, you know, I, I just always thought he was it was just complete mythology that he was this benevolent gangster, which was the image that was projected of him, including by some members of the media here in Boston, that he somehow protected South Boston and was good to the poor people. And it was almost like a Robin Hood figure. And I always knew as a reporter from covering it, that it was, that it was not true at all, that he was, you know, a terrible human being, that he had this reputation of assaulting women, um, very, very violent person, uh, no code of morals whatsoever, contrary to, you know, the public image of him. So do you think that the the romanticizing of his charitable behavior was because there was corruption or because they just liked the idea that this guy wasn't as bad as some might say? Well, Well, I I think they, they, you know, it was, it was a little of both, you know, Whitey Bulger was taking a page right out of the Al Capone playbook, you know, really, you know, doing things publicly for his community because he'd have to count on people to keep quiet when he needed them to. Um, You know, when we covered him, obviously there was, again, it was a deconstruction of the myth of, of Whitey Bulger, this, uh, you know, gentleman gangster. And we really broke down who he was. And one of the parts, uh, Susie, that really fascinated us. And I think it fascinates the public as well as that, you know, Whitey Bulger didn't work alone. His brother, Billy Bulger, was the most powerful politician in Massachusetts at the time. So as Billy's uh, star began to rise at the Massachusetts State House, Whitey Bulger's star also began to rise in the Boston underworld. And something else interesting, Susie, that he, that he did to kind of keep that neighborhood quiet, as Casey mentioned, is he was famous for uh, sending money to uh, – gangsters and thugs and criminals canteens at prison. So guys that would get in trouble pulling jobs related to Whitey, he would give money to their family. He would put money in their prison canteen, basically assuring them to be silent. So as a result of that, he got this reputation of being like a good guy in the neighborhood, but really it was only, you know, it was selfish just to keep his own, uh, his own throne intact. Man, it worked for a long time, didn't it? Sure did. Um, do you, so do you believe that the, this, the brothers are like, this, it's not a situation of like biblical, uh, scenario where there's like no a good brother. Enable yeah, right. So it's uh, not like a good and a bad one. No, you know what? I mean, <laughs> if you read the FBI interviews that we conducted for hunting Whitey, uh, they were so focused on 
Billy Bulger and Billy Bulger's uh, awareness of where Whitey Bulger was hiding at different points of his uh, time as a fugitive. And it really frustrated the FBI that you had this uh, officer of the court, because Billy was an attorney, uh, withholding evidence uh, that would eventually lead to Whitey Bulger's capture, one of the most hardened and vicious and deadly criminals in American history. I Do you think that the people of Boston see it that way now? Do you think that's clear? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think part of the benefit of, of us doing this book at the time we did it is that a lot of the people that were afraid of retribution um, are no longer afraid because A, Whitey's dead, and B, all the people around him have no more allegiance to him. So it really freed people up to speak to us that might not have otherwise. We also have the benefit of, um, you know, the FBI case, you know, the case is closed now. So the FBI opened up their files to us, allowed us into their world to really get to the root of how he was caught and what happened. Um, So I think, you know, again, the mythology of Whitey Bulger is really deconstructed generally, but I think we really finish it off and put the nail in the coffin here with this book. Yeah, Susie, I think Dave touches on a great point because, you know, there's been much written about Whitey Bulger. There have been movies about Whitey Bulger, whether it would, you know, was fictionalized with The Departed or a, uh, uh, you know, biopic starring Johnny Depp called Black Mass. You know, we didn't want to cover that old ground because other journalists had done that. What we were really focused on was what was his life like as a fugitive? in uh, this gangster's line in winter phase of his life as his body is beginning to break down around him, but he still has to be crafty. He still has to be violent on occasion, and he still has to do whatever he can to stay one step ahead of his captors. Do you think there was something about him that enjoyed that, um, that life on the run? Uh, Well, the cat and mouse game, certainly. I mean, he always loved to pull the wool over, especially the FBI's eyes. And, you know, he never considered himself as an informer uh, to the FBI, which is the ultimate uh, dishonor as a gangster being called a rat. We know he certainly was that. Bulger had, you know, created his own myth, if you will. And, uh, you know, there's a part in the book where he's being interviewed by the FBI after he was captured, and he's telling them that if he felt like he was about to die, if he was really old and and very sick, then he would have thrown himself down a mine shaft in Arizona somewhere so that his body would never have been found and that it would always be a black eye on the FBI. So he cared more about... Do you think that it was about screwing with the FBI, though, or do you think it's like he really loved the narrative of his own myth and legend. I, I think it's the latter. I, I think, you know, he did love to stick it to the FBI however he could and, and all law enforcement really, but I think he was an ultimate narcissist and he really just wanted to prove to everyone that, you know, he was the ultimate gangster. He was the ultimate criminal mind and could never, you know, he was always a step ahead of everyone else. And I think he thought of that in his criminal life I think he also thought of it with this game of cat and mouse that that Casey uh, just described, where he never wanted to uh, be outsmarted by the FBI. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Casey, you said that you don't 
think Whitey thought he was a, a rat. Is that, did I understand you yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he knew d- down in his, in his core that, okay. that he was a rat, but he tried to project an image that he was the one getting information from the FBI, not the other way around. Meanwhile, he was, you know, ratting on just about everybody he knew, including the people that were closest to him. And it's interesting that, you know, one of the things that we deconstruct in the book is Whitey's hatred toward women. Um, You know, two of the uh, murders that he uh, committed were against women that may have known too much about his gang. And these were really brutal, violent uh, killings, Susie, as you know, reading the book. And I love the fact that it was a female FBI agent that came along and said, you know what, screw it. Everybody thinks that the Boston FBI office is corrupt and everybody thinks that we're out trying to find Bigfoot and that we're never going to find him. But damn it, we're going to find Bigfoot. And she turned the whole case around and nailed his ass. There was also some sweet irony and justice in the fact that the judge in his case was a was a black female, and not only did he have this, uh, you know, problem with abusing women, and he was just a misogynist. He was also very racist, and we also learned later on that he was also an arch conservative. And here he is; the fate of his life is in the hands of a black liberal female judge in Massachusetts. So it was pretty sweet irony uh, in that in that trial. Yeah, I freaking love that. <laughs> well, also how <laughs> at the beginning of the book, you mentioned how with male criminals, often the women that they find companionship with are their undoing. Would you say that that's true in this case as well? Yeah, I think so. And that's, you know, Noreen Gleason, who's the uh, special agent that took over the uh, Whitey Bulger task force. You know, that was a direct quote from her. She said, you know, she's a woman, but unfortunately, you know, the, you know, the female in a relationship is ultimately going to lead to the gangster's demise. And for, you know, almost 16 years, the FBI had been hunting Whitey Bulger. And his name and his face were plastered all over the planet, basically, especially on uh, the uh, show America's Most Wanted. And it did uh, trigger, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of tips for elderly, you know, Caucasian men wearing sunglasses and in baseball caps. Well, you know, I could walk down the street today and find five of those. (laughs) And uh, so that, I think, stymied the uh, investigation for several years. And she said... Finally, told her her manhunters and her fugitive hunters, we're looking for the wrong person. We we're, we shouldn't be looking for him. We should be looking for her. And when they flipped the switch on the investigation, it was only a matter of time before they found him. Does it surprise you guys that he he seemed to be loyal to his girlfriend even after his capture, and really wanted people to believe that she was just an innocent victim as well? No, I, you know, I, I spent some time uh, with his brother, Billy, for this book, and also with Catherine Grigg's sister, Margaret, her twin sister, uh, Catherine Grigg being the woman that was on the run with him for 16 years. And honestly, they both described it as a, as a true love story, which is kind of another theme in this book where he really was in love with Catherine Grigg. That was the love of his life, and she, he was the love of her life. It was a twisted love affair because certainly he he was abusive to her, he manipulated her, he controlled her, and he used her uh, to to you know she was really a prop for him to continue his flight of justice. But he, again, to deconstruct the myth, he's not this noble gangster. He 
brought this woman woman with him because he didn't want to be alone on the road for 16 years, you know, and, and he used her for everything she was worth. But that said, at the end, when he was finally caught, he did try to negotiate with federal prosecutors to get her freedom, uh, which ultimately he, he wasn't successful in doing. And that yeah. love, uh, Susie, was expressed, you know, several times in his, his letters. Uh, you know, we were able to uh, gain access to 70 letters that uh, Whitey Bulger had written behind bars, and, and the majority of them are talking about his his love of Catherine and how she got railroaded by prosecutors. And, and he said he, would, he was willing to be executed tomorrow as long as she could be free today. Wow. Hmm. Well, she has some questionable taste in men, but (laughs) (laughs) you know, who hasn't made that mistake, you know, marrying a mobster or whatever. Um, Okay. So do you find it strange? You guys have been doing this work for so long um, and you've kind of become these true crime writers and Mm. not kind of, um, does it baffle you or intrigue you that the public has becomes increasingly obsessed with true crime? I mean, true crime is the hottest uh, genre on television, the hottest genre on, uh, you know, in publishing right now. You know, Dave and I just like to tell really good stories. Right. And, and, and we don't necessarily chase after, you know, the killer in the neighborhood or, or the bad people. You know, when we decided to write about Whitey Bulger, we wanted to actually tell a positive story a positive story about perseverance in terms of that small unit of FBI fugitive hunters that, that, you know, just got absolutely crapped on for years and years and years. And they never, ever gave up hope that they were going to find this guy. And finally they get the vindication that they so, uh, you know, deservingly needed. And also one of the prosecutors, uh, Brian Kelly, who's uh, part of the team that, that ultimately put Whitey in jail, um, he had been threatened. He worked on the mob cases for years and he was an investigator in the U S attorney's office and he got threatened by, uh, received death threats to the point where the FBI had to, uh, put, put, uh, protection at his home, sweep his house, that sort of thing. So these guys were up against a lot too. They're up against, you know, corrupt, uh, public officials, corrupt agents, corrupt police officers. And they had to ultimately build this case to put this guy away and, um, you know, again, with the with the FBI folks, the case you just described, it was really uh, a pretty heroic effort to finally put the exclamation point on this incredible crime saga. Do you think that they got mistreated at all by their colleagues for sort of exposing some of that corruption? Uh, the FBI or prosecution? Um, the FBI. Um, well, I, I think that, you know, their colleagues felt... A vindication when Whitey Bulger was caught because he was a, a stain on the National Bureau. And and there were many people out there, you know, even in uh, the world of journalism that believed that the FBI didn't want him caught, that they wanted him to stay out in the cold because he had so many, you know, alleged uh, secrets yeah. to reveal. There's a, a certain um, chapter in the book where a San Diego Sheriff's deputy spots Whitey Bulger at a movie screening of all things The Departed uh, back in the early 2000s and tries to capture him on a trolley in San Diego. And then, um, you know, Bulger gives him the slip and this uh, sheriff's deputy reaches out to the FBI and tells him what he knows. And the FBI's response is, who is Whitey Bulger? 
We don't even know who he is. And that was the tip line for all Whitey Bulger tips on the West Coast. So there is a bit of why didn't they find him so quickly? And I think I don't think that's that that's corruption that they wanted to keep him out there. I think it was negligence, and I think it was incompetence by you know some of the people that you know worked on this case very early on. That was such a great passage to read. Um, you guys did such a good job of creating the suspense, um, and in general, just about your book. You're so good at storytelling that you say you love to do and um, just painting the picture of, of his life and the circumstances and you're out, you elevate the true crime genre. So I just love it. That, that, that's nice. I mean, Casey and I, we, we like to write books that we would want to read. Yeah. Which is kind of our style. And I think that's what every great writer should do. Like, you know, I love to read books, but I, I love to read books that make me want to keep reading every page. So we try to make sure every page has new information, something interesting, exciting, something that gets an emotional response. And, you know, we're, we're lucky that we've had some, some good stories to tell. And, and, you know, this, this book was, was really exciting to do. We're, we're so excited to share it with everybody. Yeah. You do such a good job at, you. you know, pr- you know, people are complicated. Relationships are complicated. Morality is complicated. And, sure. you know, it can be difficult to describe all of that while being concise and, and well, readable. We, we really are, you know, we try to focus on literary storytelling and treat each person, you know, these real life people as characters and get under their skin and find out what their motivations are and what, what drives them, whether it's Whitey Bulger trying to stay elusive you know, as he's getting older and older, or it's Noreen Gleason or Tommy Mack, you know, the fugitive manhunter that has been trying to find uh, fresh pictures of Whitey's girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, to unlock the key to this case and finally does, you know, via a, um, uh, a plastic surgeon in Boston. And, and you, so you, you know, the reader, you know, gets these victories with, with the characters as they happen. One thing that you mentioned in the book that I was like, wait, 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 I need to know more about that was um, that he ran away to the circus at one point in his childhood. I was like, go on. Do we know anything more about that? I, I, Casey, do you know more about that situation? Yeah, I mean, he was, he, was a, he was an odd kid who, you know, grew up obviously in a very troubled environment and life in, uh, in South Boston. I mean, he used to keep, you know, comic books, true crime comic books under his bed. Bonnie and Clyde were uh, his biggest heroes as a, as a young boy. And the circus was just uh, an adventure for Whitey Bulger. I think, you know, his whole life, especially early on, you know, it was all about being adventurous and, and getting out of his little uh, neighborhood in South Boston and exploring the world, whether it was pulling off bank heists or doing something, you know, more nefarious. And I think eventually it, it really became, you know, part of his DNA, that criminality that, that changed him from kind of a, a fun-loving, you know, young kid to a real hardened gangster. And, you know, Dave talked to, uh, as he mentioned, Billy Bulger, uh, Whitey's brother, and a lot of Bulger's, uh, Whitey's hardness came from the nonstop police beatings that he was subject to as a teenager and a young man, right, Dave? Yeah, and I I also think that, you know, Whitey was a bit of an escapist and a narcissist, as I said before, but 
if you have ever been to South Boston, it's literally a peninsula and it can be a very isolating place. And it's not uncommon for uh, poor kids that grow up there to never leave South Boston. So I think Whitey was one of those poor kids. It was, you know, World War II era. There was a lot of poverty. And at that, you know, now South Boston is a very wealthy uh, place to live. But back then it was completely blue collar and a lot of, there was a lot of poverty, including Whitey's family. So I think he and his brother did whatever they could. They used what they were given to get out of that neighborhood. And Whitey went to the circus and then he became, you know, the, the crime boss that he was. And that took him all over the world. His brother went the other way and, you know, went to college and became one of the most powerful politicians in, in the state. And actually at one point, you know, he'd have to have been considered one of the most powerful politicians in the country uh, running the Massachusetts Senate. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Why do you think um, Whitey seemed nostalgic for his time in Alcatraz? Because, you know, that he always called uh, Alcatraz his Harvard. You know, that was his alma mater. And he uh, walked around with a, a big Alcatraz uh, belt buckle um, because he was so proud of, of where he had come from. And, you know, when, when he gets thrown into federal prison in Arizona after his conviction, you know, it's a different world, uh, you know, in the modern era where, you know, criminals don't have this code of honor that Whitey Bulger allegedly had in, um, in Alcatraz. And he always waxed poetic about his time on the rock. And he was a, he was a historian about his time on the rock as well. And uh, it's interesting that he just, you know, he looks at Alcatraz almost like somebody that graduated from an Ivy League college. You know, the leafy campus that he had left behind, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, what's gone wrong with this world? And it's all about those damn, you know, kids now that don't have any respect for anybody. I think that was Whitey Bulger's uh, uh, kind of motive and understanding. This is so bonkers. And then when your book was first being discussed in the press, I kept reading about the um, experiments that were done on Whitey. Um, that was making a big splash. Why do you think that the... LSD experiments that were done in prison weren't then used in the defense um, once he was captured? That, that, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, that's always been part of his story. Um, but I don't, I don't think that, you know, he didn't do an insanity plea. So had he pleaded insanity, maybe it would have been relevant. But under the circumstances, he was just trying to fight the case. He was actually, his defense was actually that he had complete immunity to do everything he did. That was his defense. Um, he claimed that he cut a devil's deal with the U.S. Attorney's Office, a, a former U.S. attorney named Jeremiah O'Sullivan, who has passed away. Um, he claims he literally cut a back alley deal with him that said, you keep feeding me information about the Italian mafia, we'll take them down, you do whatever you want, we'll turn the other way. And that was his defense in court. And ultimately, it, it got the defense itself got rejected. And then, you know, the evidence obviously was too overwhelming. 
But Susie, when it's interesting that, you know, when he was on the run and this is really where, you know, we take the ball from the 50 yard line, which is what, where a lot of the other books about Whitey Bulger have uh, ended up and we bring it right into the end zone because, you know, you cannot be subject to more than a thousand F, uh, LSD experiments without your brain being altered. And his brain was certainly altered. You know, he was a, he was a bad guy. And after the LSD experiments, he was a bad guy on, on steroids. And he, uh, he could never sleep that night when uh, the FBI raided his apartment in Santa Monica. You know, they found candles in his room because he always needed a lit candle in his room just for to, to get his mind off of some of the hallucinations that he was still experiencing well into his 80s. Do you think that he was, in fact, sort of set up to go to a prison in which he was pretty much guaranteed to be harmed? So it, it, look, it looks to me from the evidence that, that we gathered and, and all the people we interviewed for this book, it looks like a combination of, of, uh, of negligence and, and perhaps uh, corruption. Um, really, my opinion is that, you know, the, the, the wardens at both prisons, the prison in Florida and the prison in uh, West Virginia, where he ultimately was killed, both dropped the ball. Um, and the Bureau of Prisons dropped the ball. His transfer to that prison never should have been approved. Um, but certainly the warden there at Hazleton bears responsibility because it's his call when an, when an inmate comes in, uh, where to, where to place them. And he allowed Whitey Bulger to be placed into, um, general population when the, the lieutenants on duty that night when Whitey was brought in flagged Bulger. They saw that he was an organized crime figure. They saw he had informant status and they notified the warden and, and said, you know, what should we do with this guy? And he said, just put him put them in general population. So I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. Do you feel bad for the way that he perished at all? No, 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 I don't. Uh, and nor does the FBI, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, we uh, followed one of the old FBI agents, uh, agent named Charlie uh, Gianturco, who, uh, you know, we, we write about uh, extensively in the book. And, you know, he was frustrated because he was in the early uh, Whitey Bulger investigation and never, never landed, you know, his man. And uh, when I interviewed him after Bulger was murdered, he said, uh, well, you know, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And then he shook his head and he said, bleep that. He goes, you know what? That makes Whitey Bulger sound valiant. Whitey Bulger was a scumbag. Whitey Bulger was a predator of women. Whitey Bulger was a killer of women. So imagine when justice comes for Bulger that he may have had fear in his eyes, that he may have felt the same pain that his victims had felt so many years before. And Whitey Bulger told one of his inmates, inmate friends in Arizona, and we write about this in the book, you know, uh, if I get it, I want it quick because I gave it quick. And uh, which was kind of a lie because Bulger liked to really torture many of his victims. And I think, uh, you know, the killers of Whitey Bulger, certainly they didn't spend a lot of time with him, but they spent enough time where he knew, you know, what was happening to him and he knew where he was going, which was to help. I, I will say one thing. I, I, while I have no sympathy for Whitey Bulger, I do have a problem with uh, negligence and obviously corruption and I think that if there were avoidable mistakes here that were made or overt corruption that put him in harm's way on purpose, 
that shouldn't be allowed to go on. I mean, we're, you know, we're a civilized society. Uh, you know, we don't give the death penalty lightly in this country and people should not give de facto death penalties if they're running prisons. And, you know, we expect better from our, from our prison uh, administrators. They, they really, you know, their job is to try to prevent this sort of stuff, not enable it. So if there's any evidence that, that that's exactly what happened, I hope that those people are held accountable. Is there anything in your book that you really love to talk about, but not many people are asking about? Like That's your personal I mean, I, I think that what, what, you know, Bulger's time, um, you know, in prison, again, we, we take, to take his story from the streets of Santa Monica to the courthouse and eventually behind prison walls. So we get to see a part of, you know, a, a part of Whitey Bulger that not a lot of other people have seen before. You know, before Bulger was murdered at Hazleton, he was actually attacked and stabbed in the head early on in his uh, prison sentence. And, you know, that story's never been out there before. And uh, so to to think that, you know, Bulger was a target the moment that he got into prison is is a pretty interesting part of the story. Here's this big badass gang boss who, again, is getting older and more feeble and losing his motor skills. And eventually it comes to a point where uh, prisoners are trying to steal sneakers in the prison yard. Now, you wouldn't imagine that anybody would even breathe uh, in Whitey Bulger's direction when he was the crime boss in South Boston. But, you know, a lot of these guys at the end of his life really treated him like, uh, you know, a feeble old man that they were going to uh, get one over on. So not only was Bulger, you know, murdered in a very uh, heinous way, he was also incredibly humiliated by his fellow inmates. Yeah, that shoe story, it was just pitiful. Yeah, you know yeah. this guy well, that's supposed to be all tough. It's pitiful if, if it happened to your grandfather, Susie. You know, if it happened to Bulger, <laughs> right. and I'm not sure it's so pitiful. No, no, right? Not sympathetic. I just mean like, oh, that's just yeah. strange no, to I, think I, about. Of fallen is what is yeah. That also goes to what I was saying, where you know, again, no sympathy for Whitey Bulger, but uh, the guy was stabbed in prison. He's clearly a target. The prison he's going to is filled with uh, Italian mobsters. Oh, and by the way, some from Massachusetts. Oh, and by the way, some that actually had ties to Whitey's criminal past. And you're putting him into that situation as an 89-year-old man. They reduced his health care level. Someone changed that document. He was at the highest health care level when he was at uh, Coleman down in Florida. And that was changed so that he could be moved. That's, you know, someone needs to answer for that. I mean, here's a guy that's had multiple heart attacks. He can barely walk at this point. He's 89 years old, and they stick him in general population. So, again, no sympathy. Um, he, you know, gets what he deserves there. But, you know, that's not really responsible uh, inmate control, to say the least. So do you guys just continue on the same path, or do you feel like you need levity and you're going to write about, like, you know, something adorable? We're write about puppies next. <laughs> what did you say? We're going to write about puppies next. Yeah. Well, you know, Susie, I mean, we've written uh, some true crime stories, but we've also written stories of hope and inspiration. Yeah. We wrote the story about Pete Frades, who was the ALS uh, hero that inspired the Ice Pucket Challenge. And that was an incredible story that was also very emotional for us to get involved with because we got very close to Pete and his family. Pete Frades passed away at the age of 35 uh, back in December. Um, but every story and every book stays with us. All the people that we've 
that we've written about, whether it's the Boston Marathon bombings that eventually became the movie Patriots Day. You know, we got embedded with the survivor community for well over a year uh, and told those stories in a very, you know, honest um, way. And uh, we're still, you know, uh, indebted to those survivors and, and friends with them to this day. And when we start to think about how we get past the hunting Whitey story, it's all about not necessarily keeping Whitey Bulger with us because we don't want to do that. It's about keeping the idea of, as I said, perseverance, some of these FBI agents, some of these prosecutors that, that did the right thing at the end of the day. Those are the stories that will continue to uh, stay with us and inspire us in whatever uh, project we go to next. Mm, I love that. And I really love the book. I'll show everyone again, Hunting Whitey. It's phenomenal. And now I have to read all your other stuff. I got to get caught up. Um, but I just thank you for all the work that you're doing because it's so important and helpful and we're all grateful. Thank you. We, we right back at you. Thanks for uh, <laughs> helping us get the word out about the book and we're glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Yes. We'll spread the word and we'll make sure everybody in, enjoys it. And, and, uh, you guys can keep on writing because we need you. And now you're off the hook. Thank you so much. You guys are a delight. Thanks.